0: Okay, Zillow. When you think of homes, buying a home, you probably check out Zillow. Uh, If you check out shares of Zillow today, ouch, they are crumbling, plunging after the real estate listings company's revenue forecast missed even the lowest analyst estimates. Some other things too. Let's dig into it with Mandeep Singh, uh, tech industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers and analysts. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Also with us, Brad Erickson, analyst over at KeyBank Capital Markets on the phone from Portland, Oregon, and and uh, Brad's got an overweight on Zillow. Uh, Mandeep, uh, Mandeep, let's start with you. Zillow, disappointing quarter.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it has to do with their entry into the home segment, which Again, if you look at Zillow, you know, this was a very stable What do you company. mean entry
0: into the home segment? Remind they, everybody. They,
1: they are trying to get into the business of buying and selling homes, which is inherently a low margin business. And obviously, it requires a lot of capital expenditure. You know, you have to buy a home, keep it on your books and sell it. It's different of- than
0: just having listings.
1: Exactly. And and so, so far, they had a very stable advertising model. They had, you know, you could expect an EBITDA margin of, you know, 20%. So suddenly, you are venturing into a business which can give you the revenue upside. So this definitely helps them diversify the revenue. And that's the goal here, that they were starting to see deceleration in their sales. In, in their core business, the premier agent business. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to diversify revenue. So this will definitely give a boost to the revenue. The problem is on the margin side. Right. This is going to result in much lower margins than their traditional business. And that's why the market is reacting.
2: So Brad, want to bring you in here. You lowered your price target, I believe, to $56 a share, but kept it at overweight, as, as Carol mentioned, the stock at, at overweight. What's your thinking here?
3: Yeah,
4: there's kind of two things to it. One is just very holistically we believe that you know, in the future real estate agents are going to have to lean more than less on Zillow, and they are obviously a secular beneficiary as a function of that. The second aspect I know I think where people tend to sort of misinterpret the way that Homes is intended to to, or what it's intended to do, it's really intended to be complementary to their existing very, very high margin. Uh, business, we continue to believe the shares will be looked at on the l- largely around the margins and the the profitability of the uh, you know, internet media technology business, what they call IMT. And so, the, you know, while the overall business may look worse from an overall margin perspective, you have still got a, an ad business within it that's very very profitable, growing very fast.
0: Brad, ooh,
2: it, well, I was just going to follow up with that, Brad, and ask you know this acquisition of the of the mortgage servicing company. How does that play into the to the broader strategy here. And does that make the home buying and selling business better? Does it essentially maybe help out this concern that Mandeep laid out about margins or no? Um,
4: no, I think it, once again, it's intended to mostly complement the ad business. And, and in this case, it's, yeah, it's, it's real intent is to to kind of aid the home's process. I think really what they're striving to do longer term is change how The average home buyer under, say, four hundred thousand dollars goes to market. If Mm. one of the ways that you would traditionally go to market is just, "Hey, I'm going to go to Zillow and 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 see what's what, see what I can get for my house," then I think the 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 strategy will have been working. And you know what these guys are aiming to do is move themselves down the funnel at all parts of the value chain. So that's obviously mortgage. That's working with the real estate agents. It's probably in the future things like title and escrow. Um, The more that they are a part of that value chain, the more value that they ultimately can extract from it.
0: Yeah, think about throwing blockchain into it, right? And you you really can, in terms of the legal documents, have this all put together. I mean, Mandeep, when you look at this, does this strategy, this forward-looking strategy um, by Zillow make sense? It's just maybe not paying off right now?
1: So look at their history. They've made a bunch of acquisitions. They bought Trulia. They really Mm -hmm. aggregated the online listing market. And I feel Zillow has this tendency to tinker around with a lot of new businesses. Some of the bets have paid off so far. And in this case, the only risk that I see is the fact that uh, they may have to, you know, just get out of this if, if this just does, doesn't work out. And and I think... Uh, get out of which part? Uh, of the home buying business. So they are... That experiment- to
0: me sounds like you're... I mean, that can be really expensive. If if you get caught with a housing market downturn and you've got a bunch of inventory. But
1: they are starting small here. So they okay. are just playing in a couple of cities. They're starting really small. And I, I think the good thing for them is they have a lot of data around the real estate market. So we talk about big data, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. Zillow has ton of data around listings, around home sales. So if they're able to leverage the data and figure out to make this profitable, that will work. But I, I think the jury is not out yet, and it'll still take a few quarters to figure that out.
0: All right. Well, it certainly is changing strategy. Uh, Mandeep Singh, he's our tech industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers. And Brad Erickson on the phone uh, from Portland, uh, analyst over at KeyBank Capital Markets. back on the chain Blockchain to use for managing legal contracts. Monax is doing just that. This company has offices in New York, also Edinburgh. And for a better handle on what they're up to, let's bring in Casey Coleman. He is the CEO at Monax, and he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Tell me a little bit more about what you guys are doing, because we've been all talking about, of course, Bitcoin and other digital currencies and blockchain more specifically uh, over the last year or so. Um, You guys have been doing this and been at it for a few years.
5: Sure. As as Monarchs, we're kind of a dinosaur in the blockchain space. We have been at the forefront of this technology for quite a few years, since 2014. We were the first to market with what's called a permissionable blockchain, which uh, kick-started the entire blockchains for business becoming an industry. Uh, now we were the first to market with uh, accelerator packages that could help companies uh, – uh, really quickly spin up their use cases and uh, and then we sort of started to work our way up the stack into a more vertically integrated solution and when we were analyzing uh, the use cases that we had been uh, experienced and what we were excited about one really stood out which was leveraging the technology to track what companies have agreed to do what has actually happened in the real world uh, in order to surface the risk that comes in the delta between those two things, and you know, Casey, you are a recovering lawyer, I guess. <laughs> I you am could say.
2: <laughs> and uh, you know, you've had some experience all over the world, specifically, you know, both East and West Africa. And, and we were talking a little bit uh, before you came on about the idea that that's really as when you were a practicing attorney, that's sort of where this idea bubbled up. How, how
5: did that happen? Sure, I was as a practicing attorney. I was really interested in. Um, how could I make my own practice more efficient and effective? And this was incredibly important because I was practicing at the time in one of the poorest countries on earth. And most of my clients didn't have tons of money that I could uh, that they could pay me. I uh, apologize. And so I needed to do things, turn around documents for them, provide them advice, really, really efficient. But also as a lawyer, you you want to provide effective advice as well. And one of the things that I had really been exploring was how can the computers help us by running the contracts and in historically in in earlier ways of technology this has been a real challenge because if you and I are in a contract and we say well we want the computers to run the contract I don't want the uh, then the question becomes on whose Computers where right. the contract run. I don't want it running on yours. You don't want it running on mine. And uh, one of the advantages that blockchain technology gives us is a collaborative infrastructure on which we can co-manage uh, these contracts that are running.
0: So, give us an example of a company and industry that's using it.
5: Um, sure. At this point, we're still uh, pre-product. So we're in the test nets of uh, the agreements network, which is what we're building. And and one of the key use cases that uh, we're very excited about is a little bit more futuristic, but it's fun to parse out. A lot of business models um, are moving towards this idea of fleet leasing. So if you think about industrial robotics, or you think about commercial drones or autonomous cars, the business models for the manufacturing companies is going to migrate from being an OEM to being uh, more of a fleet management uh, company. And this requires two big changes in how we would Traditionally do contracting. First change is that you uh, have a lot more dynamism in what is happening within the contractual instruments. And second off, you have uh, quite a few more players that uh, need to have the information around this particular contractual instrument. But
0: is it like renting a car?
5: It's not exactly like renting a car. When you're talking about uh, a huge fleet of, let's say, thousands of commercial drones or um, or thousands of autonomous cars, you you have some of the dynamics that you would have when you have a, a car rental situation uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have a whole range of more long-term dynamics. In other words, what's the maintenance schedule? What is the delivery schedule? How do we uh, change and adapt the amount of uh, uh, robotics or, or drones or vehicles to uh, reflect what actually needs to be accomplished in a particular place. So you have place. this
0: contract on blockchain, all the parties involved can see it, it's in a secure place, we would mm-hmm. assume, correct? And yes. so there's a lot of transparency.
5: Yes. And and I've often said that, uh, and, and, and some people uh, leverage the fact that uh, blockchains uh, utilize cryptography to think that blockchains are heavily private. And I always say that blockchains are transparency machines rather than privacy machines. And I think what we will start to see very quickly is um, the, uh, the movement of legal processes onto blockchain technology. Are you a little was... early, though? We're very early. We're, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're... When
0: do you really think that this could become more the norm?
5: I, I think we're looking at before this would impact a lot of people's lives, Um Probably a three-year time horizon. Three years. And, and what other industries do you
2: think are ripe for this? Because it feels like there's been so much hype, certainly around, as, as Carol alluded to at the top, so much hype around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But the underlying blockchain technology, what are the areas beyond the law, in your estimation,
5: that really could use this? It's funny um it, name the name the vertical yeah. and uh the top ten companies in that vertical will have blockchain exploration
0: like patents and so on uh yeah or that's I guess still legal yeah.
5: I mean that's legal, yeah. but um you uh, energy healthcare um uh uh, banking, of course, has been sort of way out in front of this. Insurance, um, on and on. All of those verticals have uh, at least explored the technology and proof of concept. Some have moved towards pilot phase, and uh, across a whole range of big companies, there's a big exploration. And and the real value here, and is that this enables a collaborative infrastructure on which to uh, solve processes or solve problems, pardon me, of, uh, of coordination across big
2: companies. And what will you do in that space? I mean, do you guys think you'll stay in in the legal arena or do you sort of expand across some of those other verticals?
5: We'll see how, how the ecosystem evolves. Uh, in, in our worldview, the root of all commercial activities is contracts. Um, pretty much everything that happens within a specific domain or a subject matter within that domain, for example, the uh, accounting system of a company, what the accounting Uh, a department does is, uh, they do because of legal contracts underneath. And, uh, and so this is one of the reasons why we think if we can start with the root of commercial relationships being contracts, that we can, over time, uh, let things evolve in a very natural way.
0: I think it's another example of emerging markets because out of need and necessity and not a lot of money and uh, you know, resources that you come up with a different way of doing things. We see this kind of over and over again. Casey Coleman, let us know uh, how things are going. Thank you very much. Casey Coleman, Chief Executive Officer at Monax, uh, based in New York and Edinburgh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, on this Tuesday afternoon. All right, we have a lot of stories to kick around with our own John Ehrlichman. He's anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, back with us from Toronto. John Ehrlichman, we're going to talk Disney, we're going to talk Snap. Of course, they're reporting earnings after the closing bell. But first up, we got to talk about Tesla. Uh, Stock is still halted in trading, of course, around 1230 Wall Street time, 1239 or something like that. Uh, Elon Musk puts out a Twitter and says, well, maybe I'll take the company private and put out a price. (laughs) Anyway, the stock, it's been an interesting day. And then, of course, earlier you had the news that uh, reports that the uh, Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund had taken a $2 billion stake. Um, What's your take? What are you hearing when you talk to people about this story today?
6: Well, at the end of the day, I think the simplest explanation here is that Elon Musk is frustrated with the storyline surrounding his business, right? Every day we talk about the pressure that Tesla is under to continue ramping up Model 3 production, the potential for cash crunches at the company as a result of this tremendous push. I mean, it's one thing to be a big player in the fast-growing electric car market. It's another to try to become a true mass market Automobile player, uh, and Tesla is going through that right now.
7: Oh, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait John, Mark... John,
0: John. Oh. I mean, come on. I mean, a lot of companies, right? Or, or executives who start companies. There's pressure. It's difficult.
6: Uh, it, 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 there's there's plenty of pressure. This is the executive, though, who who likes to be out there and public and speak in a way that we're we're not used to. I think is that fair to say on mm. Wall Street uh, the yeah. same way we weren't used to. Um, A a president who would be so open in discussing a variety of possible things happening, whether they happen or not. I mean, I know a lot of people today are trying to determine if him musing about the possibility of taking the company private right now um, is, you know, something that is acceptable on corporate governance terms. But, you know, here's. He's, he's been laying out his case in tweets over the last hour or so, essentially saying that he thinks that if they were to go private, there would still be an opportunity for people who have invested in the business to remain invested. He just seems to be frustrated with shorts. Now, mm. I think you're right, guys. I mean, shorts are what make a market. Uh, everybody's allowed to have an opinion on right. a company, and uh, Elon Musk – doesn't like some of those strong opinions. But at the same time, this has always been a stock that has been heavily shorted. And if you are a CEO of a company for many, many years, I mean, we're we're getting into Jason's bread and butter here. Private <laughs> equity yeah. is all about the idea of going to a, a CEO who is frustrated with how the market views a company and offering this this new world of not having to address the critics of your company. If you're Elon Musk, why not? weigh that. Uh, option. SpaceX is already a private company. It seems to be working out okay for them.
2: Well, it's absolutely true, and I'm really glad you brought that up, John. I mean, both in terms of the the scope of what this deal would be, it would be the largest LBO of all time, exceeding TXU uh, back in 2007 when that deal closed. It also does speak to the idea, if he has this financing lined up, of the money that is out there to do this sort of deal. So, John, I, I do want to make sure that we talk a little bit about a little company called Disney uh, coming out with earnings. Obviously, a lot of headlines around the the Fox deal, but what are we expecting to hear from Iger and company?
6: You know, every quarter I do find that Bob Iger is ready to give you a couple little nuggets, uh, whether it's about how they're doing at the box office or what new Marvel or Pixar um, or, or Star Wars film is going to be coming up in the near future. I think everybody right now, and, and you guys might have an opinion on this, everybody wants to know about what's coming with this Netflix-like yeah. service. They've, they've got the Fox deal done now. So there's all sorts of opportunities out there. There was that report over the weekend that that uh, the Star Wars original for this new platform, 10 episodes, $100 million is the reported price associated with that show. I think everybody truly at this point, now that they've got the Fox deal done, wants to know what are they doing to take on Netflix? The rollout, they've still got time before that's actually happening, but I think that's the next chapter. and We'll look for some key information on that from Bob Iger after the company's results later today.
0: And then let's not forget Snap, also after the uh closing. Yeah. What are you watching out for, John?
6: You know, I think what's interesting with Snap is after the company went public, Facebook turned on the Jets. Instagram obviously has had tremendous success against Snap. They're going to have great user growth. There's no doubt about it. The revenue growth I think you're going to want to watch right now based on the estimates of the analysts that Bloomberg keeps tabs on. See, close to 40% growth for Snap year over year. Now, that would get their revenue in the quarter to almost a quarter billion dollars. That's huge growth for a company that had no revenue five or six years ago. But Facebook just closed at a quarter where it had more than 40% growth off a base of more than $9 billion. So I think it's just a reminder that companies like Snap have a long way to go to catch up to the Facebooks and Googles of the world. We saw Twitter take a hit recently, so we'll watch what happens with Snap.
2: John Ehrlichman, anchor of BNN, Bloomberg's the open-end correspondent for CTV National News. Thanks, as always, for your insights. Always great to bat around the news of the day and and go a little deeper. Really appreciate you being with us. Oh, Disney. That music (laughs) takes us all back, doesn't it, Carol? So, Disney, as you just heard from... Mr. Charlie Pellet out with numbers today. Disappointing Wall Street. Let's dig into it a little bit more. We have Gita Ranganathan, Technology and Media Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey, and also Brad Adgate, Independent Media Analyst, formerly with Horizon Media. He joins us on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, guys. So, Gita, what do you make of this so far?
7: So it looks like uh, the media networks... um Revenue came in a little bit light, um, and uh, there was obviously um, some concern at uh, the studio also um, because it, it looks like they had to write off some studio projects. Um, um, and um Yeah, that's a, little, that's
0: a little surprising. Brad Adgate, I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot going on with Disney, and they were also fighting for those Fox uh, entertainment assets. What do you make of the quarter?
3: Well, I, you know, I think that there's just a lot of questions that that I think investors are going to have with what they're doing. I mean, the studio has been really their the bright, shining you know, light. It used to be ESPN was the crown jewel. But they had such a great quarter with, 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 um, with, with, you know, blockbuster movies, not just Black Panther, which kind of released a, a little bit earlier, but the Avengers. And, and they had, um, um, you know, Incredibles too. So I, I think that's one of the solid things. I think, the, I think what investors really want to know is what's going on with their streaming video right. assets. What are they going to doing, you know, with Hulu? What are they going to be doing with their – what happened with ESPN Plus? Their, How do they
7: fight Netflix, the right? Consumer?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, and that's where I think that they're headed for, and I think that there's a lot of, a lot of questions. I think that needs needs to be answered.
2: Yeah, it seems like to these questions extend well beyond a quarter or two. It really goes to the heart of, you know, what is Iger's strategy here? What does he need to say uh, when he talks to investors to reassure them that the the plan is solid?
7: I think he definitely has the right strategic vision for the company. I mean, one can argue that uh, Disney has been a little bit late to the streaming game, uh, but I think their move for Fox is absolutely the right one. Um, They've really deepened their content library there. Um, They they absolutely, uh, you know, undoubtedly have best-in-class IP uh, when they come out with their uh, Disney streaming service next year. Um, So I think that has generally assuaged concerns, uh, but I I think what Invest are going to look for, uh, especially this quarter uh, in, in the earnings call, is um just numbers and the sense uh, in terms of trends at ESPN, in, in terms of trends at ESPN+, Plus, which was their streaming service, which was launched, and to kind of get an early read on how uh, the uptake there has been um, so that we're finally also able to get uh, a sense of what demand could be potentially when Disney launches its um, its own branded streaming service. Is it
0: still ESPN that's a big juggernaut when it comes to Disney? Is it still that? Ca- it is. It is still. It
7: continues to be. Yeah, it's about 30% of the company operating income. So, yes, it's a huge, huge part of uh, Disney's profit line.
2: And so, Brad, as, as you look down sort of the line items or you look at the the top line and bottom line for the various divisions, anything else jump out at you that you were surprised one way or another?
3: Well, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the streaming service is, is a huge question. I also think that, you know, when, when you're going up against Netflix and you're going up against Amazon you know it it Disney's quickly becoming a global company, and I think one of the things when they when they acquired you know the assets from fox entertainment is is you know they they got control of of star india and and you know they they have a streaming service hot start that Disney's now going to take over with seventy five million subs um and I think they really have to do that you know to kind of compete globally because you know at last last year at this time Bob Iger said he's pulling out all his content out of Netflix. Netflix or as much as he can, and he's going to start this, you know, direct-to-consumer a la carte service. So I, I think that that's something to keep an eye on, because when you're going up against the the Apples and Googles. You know, you're dealing in in a global market, and I think that that's something that, you know, they they have some assets there. Obviously, the theme parks come to mind, but I I think they really have to, uh, you know, make a big push in that area, which kind of talks about what they're going to do with with Sky, you know, with Sky TV. Are they going to bid on that or, or, you know, get another bidding war with Comcast like they did with Fox, you know, a few months ago? And I think these are things that, you know, kind of jump out.
2: Brad Adgate, thank you so much. Of course, independent media analyst. Joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and our own uh, Gita Ranganathan from Bloomberg Intelligence down in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm driving in my car. I'll How
1: about you let me drive?
3: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, stay crazy. Just drive baby. You drive me crazy.
6: This is The Drive to the
5: Close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Alan Zaffran is back with us, Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management, $121 billion in assets under management. Alan with us from Palo Alto, California, which, uh, you know, you drive around Palo Alto and uh, some other places on the West Coast, you're going to see a bunch of Teslas on the road. And <laughs> Tesla is our focus today, Mr. Zafran. Uh, we got the stock up uh, almost yeah, about 12% uh, after it was uh, halted pending some news. What an interesting day because you had Elon Musk tweeting that he was thinking about taking it private. And then he we halt the stock, or the Nasdaq halted the stock, then ultimately comes out with a, a note to uh, his employees that's made public. Um, Tesla, any thoughts?
8: Oh, Carol and Jason, yeah. Um, what an amazing comment. I guess my thought is this is the epitome of a company that, frankly, doesn't fit the mold <laughs> of having to report every quarter well, to so. shareholders. This gets back to Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett, <laughs> and frankly— between me and you, if you talk to executives all along here in Silicon Valley and probably across the country, I think they're tired of the games of being a public company and yeah. managing the quarterly earnings. The epitome of that was Jack Welch at GE, if you remember, many decades ago. But it it talks to a broader issue, it, it, particularly for a business like a Tesla, or frankly out here there are a lot of private companies like Palantir, that if you have contracts and revenues that don't have smooth quarterly streams or if you're building for the long run, it takes a lot of patience to fund these things. And at some point, public shareholders have fatigue.
2: Well, and it's, and, a, uh, it's a great point, Alan, because as you say, you do have more and more companies who are choosing not to go public. You know, the, the flocks or the herds, I guess I should say, of unicorns out by where you are, mostly headquartered out by where you are, are increasingly resisting. You think about the valuations for an Uber and Airbnb and many others that have really gone stratospheric and and resisted the urge, at least so far, uh, to go public. What does that tell you about the state, if anything, about the state of the equity markets, the public equity markets, as you look more broadly?
8: Well, it tells me that the public markets themselves are a a great mechanism if you're an executive and you want a currency to utilize, to make further acquisitions, to allow for another mechanism, to allow for liquidity, to allow um, equity passed on to uh, employees. If you want a, a mechanism to allow the public to share um, in the in the riches that your business is generating. But the system is broken mm. when, uh, if you talk to public executives, they'll tell you that somewhere around one-third of their time is spent. Dealing with issues as a public company that would not need to do as a private company. And that's a material distraction uh, from the ability for them to do their day jobs. So it's a. It, uh it's a blessing and a curse. It's an imperfect system. It's the best system we have. And there's right. accountability, but it's not perfect.
0: Well, yeah. And, you know, our, our um, Garrett DeVinck, uh Bloomberg News, just t- uh, tweeted out, Tesla has gone back to the public markets for financing nearly every year since its IPO. It's brought in $5.5 billion in total from selling equity on the public markets. I mean, Tesla has been able to build itself to where it is today because of tapping into uh, the public markets, right? And now, you know, there is accountability. And there are questions about you know, debt and so on and so forth. Um, Just kind of make it play devil's advocate a little bit. I mean, you know, there is some accountability when you're a publicly held company. Is it just a case of there needs to be a balance of not having to, you know, be so concerned about hitting that mark every quarter, you know, but also providing transparency for investors?
8: That's uh, There's no magic solution. That's that's the exact tension. At what point does transparency and accountability – get to the point where negates the ability to manage for a long-term plan. Mm -hmm. If you talk to uh, many hedge fund managers who have been short over the years in Tesla and have consistently lost money and eventually thrown in the towel, I think they came to the conclusion that Tesla was the one golden child in the mix. Had it been any other business that was burning cash flow to the tune of billions of dollars a year, they would have never made it but as long as the public markets had an insatiable demand to continue to fund Tesla's vision the stock was going to hold its value cuz the markets were providing the capital for Elon Musk and his crew to try and fulfill their vision and so you do you reach uh, an excellent point Carol and that is Public markets uh, for an enterprise like this may have delivered the capital that, and as a private company, Elon Musk may never have otherwise been able to achieve. Whether he'll be successful or not, right. we'll still see. But the public markets enabled the business to further uh, try and achieve its mission.
2: And it's interesting. You know, we're getting some quotes pulled out of the email that. Uh, Elon Musk sent to his employees and to your earlier point, Alan, he says, quote, as a public company, we are subject to wild swings in our stock price that can be a major distraction for everyone working at Tesla all of whom are shareholders. It is it is a debate uh, for our times. But, you know, before we let you go, got to ask you, you know, you're looking uh, at the actual public markets. It is your job, as it is to some extent uh, our job as well. What do you see out there uh, that gives you cause for concern right now?
8: Um, the only cause for concern is maybe a mild amount of complacency, and that the very beginnings of the things you tend to see at the end of, a, of an equity cycle are reaching their peak. So, one interesting statistic, uh, attributable to uh, my friends over at uh, Doug Ramsey over at Luthold who's the CIO, yeah. he looked at something called the median price to sales ratio for the S and P 500 index as opposed to the index itself. So if you took the median company in the S&P index, it's trading at 2.6 times its sales. It was only trading at 1.2 times its sales back in February 2000. His point is... But we don't have a bubble in the tech sector, but across the entirety of the market, things are expensive as opposed to just a handful of stocks. There's fewer opportunities going forward.
0: That's pretty cool insight. Hey, Alan, thank you so much. Alan Zafrin, Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management on the phone from Palo Alto. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.